What's the first thing you'd do if you had more time in the day? Take a nap? Read a book? Talk with a friend? When you know what's important to you, it's easier to fit it into your schedule. Therapy can help you figure that out. BetterHelp offers affordable online therapy that comes to you. Start the process in minutes and switch therapists anytime. Learn to make time for what makes you happy with BetterHelp. Visit BetterHelp.com slash Writer's Voice today to get 10% off your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P dot com slash Writer's Voice. This episode is brought to you by Progressive. Most of you aren't just listening right now. You're driving, cleaning, and even exercising. But what if you could be saving money by switching to Progressive? Drivers who save by switching save nearly $750 on average, and auto customers qualify for an average of seven discounts. Multitask right now. Quote today at Progressive.com. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company and Affiliates. National average 12-month savings of $744 by new customers surveyed who saved with Progressive between June 2022 and May 2023. Potential savings will vary. Discounts not available in all states and situations. This is The Writer's Voice, new fiction from The New Yorker. I'm Deborah Treisman, fiction editor at The New Yorker. On this episode of The Writer's Voice, we'll hear Aleph Bataman read her story, The Repugnant Conclusion, from the April 25th and May 2nd, 2022 issue of the magazine. Bataman is the author of The Possessed, Adventures with Russian Books and the People Who Read Them, and the novel The Idiot, which was a finalist for the Pulitzer Prize. The Repugnant Conclusion is adapted from her second novel, Either Or, which will be published in May. Now here's Aleph Bataman. The Repugnant Conclusion Svetlana got back to Harvard the day after me, though it felt like years. I had already slept the night in my new room, eaten breakfast and lunch in the cafeteria, and made numerous trips to the storage facility, having the same conversation over and over with people whose existence I had forgotten. How was your summer? How was your summer? How was Hungary? So, how was Hungary? Did anything happen? Lakshmi asked with a conspiratorial sparkle. Lakshmi was one of the people I remembered. Last year, when we were freshmen, We had exchanged confidences. We had both been in love with older guys. There had been certain similarities between our situations, between Ivan and Noor, and notwithstanding my feeling that a lot of things had happened, I answered the question truthfully in the sense that I knew Lakshmi intended it. Nothing had happened, meaning nothing had happened with Ivan, meaning we hadn't had sex. The last time Svetlana and I had spoken, she was at her grandmother's apartment in Belgrade, and I was at a phone booth in a Hungarian village where Ivan, who had just graduated, had found me a summer job teaching English. Did anything happen? Svetlana asked. Well, like, that one thing didn't happen, I said. When Ivan first told me about the teaching job, he said I should take my time to think about it, because he didn't want to force me into anything. Svetlana said that if I agreed to go, he was going to try to have sex with me. It was a possibility I had never previously considered. I daydreamed about Ivan all the time, imagining different conversations we might have, how he might look at me, touch my hair, kiss me. But I never thought about having sex. Nothing I knew about having sex corresponded to anything I thought about or wanted. I had tried on multiple occasions to put in a tampon. No matter what direction I pushed the applicator or how methodically I tried the different angles, the result was blinding electric pain. I kept rereading the instructions. Where was I going wrong? It was worrisome, especially since I was pretty sure that a guy, that Ivan, would be bigger than a tampon. At that point, my brain stopped being able to entertain the idea. It became unthinkable. Svetlana had said I had better think about it. You wouldn't want to end up in that situation and not have thought about it, she said reasonably. And yet, it turned out that there wasn't much to think about. 
If Ivan tried to have sex with me, it was obvious that I would let him. Maybe he would be able to tell me what I had been doing wrong, and it wouldn't be as terrible as trying to put in a tampon. Svetlana's trip to Belgrade, her first since the war, had gone well. There had been only one moment at the store downstairs from her grandmother's apartment when she dropped a coin and bent to pick it up and had suddenly remembered with horror how a milk bottle had smashed on those particular tiles. That was all there was, a six-year-old image of splintering glass, the blob of milk spreading over the dingy tiles like a diabolical hand. I wanted to hear more about the diabolical hand, but Svetlana only wanted to talk about the wilderness, where she had just been a co-leader on one of the freshman orientation programs. She described the sublimity of nature and the intense relationships that she had formed with boring-sounding freshmen through trust exercises and games that had been devised over the years for just this purpose. She didn't seem disturbed, as I would have been, by the idea that the experience had been designed for her to make her feel a certain way. An increasingly large role was played in her narration by her co-leader, Matt. Each group had two leaders, a guy and a girl. I understood why it would have been exciting to have a shared mission with a guy. At the same time, there was something sinister about everyone being so into this camping-themed mom-and-dad dress-up. Or did I feel that way only because my parents were divorced? Svetlana and I were reading the course catalog. It was like the book of all human possibilities. I thought there was something wrong with the way it was organized. Why were the different branches of literature categorized by geography and language, while sciences were categorized by the level of abstraction or by the size of the object of study? Why wasn't literature classified by length? Why wasn't science classified by country? Why did religion have its own program instead of falling under philosophy or anthropology? What made something a religion and not a philosophy? Why was the history of non-industrial people anthropology and not history? Well, of course there are arbitrary categories, Svetlana said, but it's because they're historical, not formal. She said that you couldn't actually separate the subject from the history of how it had been conceived since ancient Greece. Personally, I thought we should be trying to think of a better way to organize knowledge than whichever one we happen to have inherited. Under comparative literature, I came to a listing for a class called Chance. Topics include the flaneur and the random walk as the paradigmatic site of urban experience, I read. Chance was what Ivan had gone to California to study. His thesis had been about random walks. And flaneurs were something that literature people talked about and literature was what I was going to study. Could the flaneurs and the random walks help me understand what had happened with Ivan? The course description mentioned Andre Breton's Nadja, a book I'd noticed once in Svetlana's room when I was waiting for her to get ready to go running. Is this good? I asked. I don't know if you would like it. You can borrow it if you want. I turned to the last page. It said, beauty will be convulsive or will not be at all. Maybe another time, I said. Months later, Ivan had written me a long email about Fellini and clowns, and the last line was, beauty, Breton says, will be convulsive or will not be at all. I had resolved to look at Nadja again the next time I was in Svetlana's room to see if there were any context clues that might help with the clowns but the year had somehow ended without my ever again waiting for Svetlana in her room, looking at her books. Now we lived in different buildings, and eventually we would live far apart, and I would never hang out in her bedroom. How brief and magical it was that we lived so close to each other, and our most important job was to solve mysteries. The temporariness made it all the more important to follow the right leads. It was exciting to turn the corner in the bookstore from computer science to comparative literature, to see the unwieldy textbooks give way to normal-sized books that looked as if a person might actually read them just in the course of life. But the chance books had an off-putting minimalism with slim bindings and wide margins. The books I usually liked were thicker, less expensive, 
less visibly cool. That was how you knew they would contain long descriptions of furniture and people falling in love. Just then, my eye was caught by a fat Penguin Classics volume with a poorly reproduced 19th century painting on the cover, Either Or by Søren Kierkegaard. I opened it to a random page and read, Either, then, one is to live aesthetically or one is to live ethically. My heart was pounding. There was a book about this? I had first heard the phrase aesthetic life last year in a class called Constructed Worlds. We were reading a French novel titled Against Nature about the degenerate scion of a noble family who devoted himself to decadent projects like growing orchids that resembled meat. In the end, I didn't think much of what that guy had accomplished. Still, I found the idea of an aesthetic life tremendously compelling. It was the first time I had heard of anyone having an organizing principle or goal for life other than just trying to make money and have kids. People never openly said that that was their organizing principle, but I had often noticed when I was growing up the way adults acted as though trying to go anywhere or achieve anything was a frivolous dream, a luxury, compared with the real work of having kids and making money. Nobody ever explained what was admirable about having kids or why it was the default course of action for every human being. If you ever asked why any particular person had had a kid or what good a particular kid was, people treated it as blasphemy, as if you were saying that they should be dead or the kid should be dead. It was as if there was no way to ask what the plan had been without implying that someone should be dead. One day, Early in our friendship, Svetlana had told me that she thought I was trying to live an aesthetic life and it was a major difference between us because she was trying to live an ethical life. I wasn't sure why the two had to be opposed and worried for a moment that she thought that I thought that it was okay to cheat or steal. But it turned out she meant something else, that I took more risks than she did and cared more about style while she cared about history and traditions. When it came to choosing classes, Svetlana liked taking introductions and surveys, mastering basics before moving to the next level. I had a terror of being bored, so I preferred to take highly specific classes with interesting titles, even when I hadn't taken the prerequisites and had no idea what was going on. According to the back of Either Or, the first half of the book was about the aesthetic life and included a novella called The Seducer's Diary, while the second half was about the ethical life and consisted of some letters from a judge about marriage. So the ethical life was related to getting married. I had suspected as much. It was somehow implicit in my friendship with Svetlana that she wanted to be in a stable relationship and to someday be a mother, while I wanted to have interesting experiences that would help me be a writer. Unsurprisingly, the back of either or didn't tell you which way of living was right. All it said was, does Kierkegaard mean us to prefer one of the alternatives, or are we thrown back on the existentialist idea of radical choice? That had probably been written by a professor. I recognized the professor's characteristic delight at not imparting information. Lakshmi had come to the bookstore with me, but she never actually bought anything. She always just browsed the post-colonial and critical theory and later scrounged up whatever books she decided she needed from Noor and his scary friends. That was a difference between us. I had barely met Ivan's friends, but Lakshmi spent most of her time with Noor's circle. It had taken me months to realize that Lakshmi wasn't rich. Her clothes came from invitation-only sales in New York that she went to with Noor's friend Isabel, or from some kind of consignment store where rich women and teens offloaded barely-worn couture items using the proceeds to buy one another's anxiety and ADHD medications. I had never heard of such goings-on, which Lakshmi spoke of as routine. Lakshmi had grown up in palatial residences in Dubai and Copenhagen because her father was an ambassador. Her parents had hosted lavish parties, attended by a large staff, without actually owning any of the things in their house. According to the introduction to Either Or, 
Lots of people skipped the ethical half and even most of the aesthetic half and just read The Seducer's Diary. Kierkegaard himself had said of either or that you had to either read the whole book or just not read it at all. Kierkegaard was funny. Nonetheless, I too flipped forward to The Seducer's Diary. The Seducer's Diary started with a description of Johannes, the seducer, and how he was able, using his mental gifts, to make a girl fall in love with him without caring to possess her in any stricter sense. When I read that, I almost threw up. Wasn't that what had happened to me? Hadn't I been brought to the point where I would sacrifice everything only for Ivan to leave off without the slightest advance? Because he never had tried to have sex with me, and all the nights we sat up till dawn, all we did was talk. The diary was about how this guy saw some random 17-year-old girl on the street and decided he would not spare her, and slowly, over the course of weeks and even months, he insinuated himself into her life, into her family circle, presenting himself as an honorable suitor. When he proposed, he did it as confusingly as possible, so she would have no idea what she had agreed to. If she can predict anything, then I have gone wrong, and the whole relationship loses its meaning, he wrote. This was just how I had felt when Ivan told me about the Hungary program. Once they were engaged, Johannes put on a huge campaign to convince her that engagements were dumb and got her to break it off. Then he tricked her into having sex with him, and then he disappeared, forever, because that was his M.O. Afterward, the girl scarcely knew what, if anything, had happened to her, whether it had been real. As soon as she wanted to speak of it to another, Kierkegaard wrote, it was nothing. The extent to which the seducer left a girl with nothing was the very mark of his artistry. It meant having the self-control to not get her pregnant or abandon her at the altar. It meant no spectators, no proof. For Russian class, I had to read a short story called Rudolfio. It was about a 16-year-old girl named Io who was in love with a 28-year-old married man. Io, who was whimsical, maintained that when she and this man Rudolf were together, they formed a single entity, Rudolfio. Rudolf laughed and said that Io was funny. One day, when Rudolf's wife was out, Io showed up at his house. Her breasts resembled little nests built by unknown birds to hatch their nestlings. Rudolf lent Io a copy of The Little Prince, which he, a grown man, had for some reason. Io and Rudolf took a walk in a vacant lot full of garbage. Io asked Rudolf to kiss her. Rudolf kissed her on the cheek and said, only the closest people kiss on the lips. Io slapped him in the face and ran away through the garbage. Io didn't go home that night. She turned up only the next afternoon. Rudolf rushed over and found her sitting on her bed, facing the wall. She wouldn't say anything about where she had been and only told Rudolf to go to hell. Then Rudolf nodded, picked up his raincoat, and went to hell. In class, Irina Nikolaevna asked us whether Rudolf had loved Io. Everyone agreed that he hadn't. Maybe he loved her a little bit, Julia said. He didn't love her, Andre said. He was playing games. I don't personally consider it love, and maybe, after all, he wasn't capable, Svetlana, who spoke Russian a billion times better than the rest of us, said. We discussed the difference between kissing on the cheek, accusative singular, and on the lips, accusative plural. Irina Nikolaevna asked each of us to describe the first time we kissed anyone on the lips. Julia said she had kissed a boy in a playground when she was nine. Andre said he had kissed his girlfriend at a Christmas party when he was 11. Svetlana said she had kissed her cousin's boyfriend at the zoo when she was 13. I said, untruthfully, that I had kissed a boy at summer camp when I was 15. Fifteen, are you sure? Irina Nikolaevna wrote one five on the board. It turned out that she thought I had to have been younger. She asked then what the boy had been like. 
I said he played the mandolin, inviting follow-up questions about how and where he had played the mandolin. He played the mandolin everywhere, incessantly, I said. Russian is so weird, Svetlana said afterward in the bathroom. I don't think when you learn other languages you have to talk about your sexual history. It's funny, back when I was 13, I felt so bad about kissing my cousin's boyfriend, but it really came in handy today because if it wasn't for that, I would never have kissed anyone. I was wondering what I would have said then. Then I suddenly felt worried about you because I know you never had a boyfriend either. I actually almost turned around and told you, Celine, for once in your life, just don't tell the truth, okay? But then you had Mandolin Boy up your sleeve. I was so relieved. Mandolin Boy saved the day, I agreed, looking in the mirror. My hair resembled the nest of an unknown bird prepared to hatch its nestlings. I started auditing an ethics seminar taught by a philosopher from Oxford. He used a lot of overhead transparencies, usually putting them on upside down or backward. The transparencies were charts and graphs about the quality of life for different populations. One question we talked about in the seminar was how to weigh the benefit of a slight improvement in the present quality of life for millions of people against a risk of great harm to millions of people who hadn't been born yet. It was complicated because if you improved the present quality of life, then more people would have children, meaning that the people you were potentially harming in the future were people who might not otherwise have been born, so maybe you had done them a favor. In general, a lot of ethical questions were related to causing people to be born. Was it morally wrong not to have a child if you knew she would be happy? What if you knew that most of her life would be happy, but the last five years would be extremely unhappy? I didn't get why the extremely unhappy person wasn't allowed to kill herself before she messed up her average. The ethics seminar always left me feeling dissatisfied and anxious. That offhand way of invoking the quality of life, as if we could measure it. I wish there was a class where you learned what it actually was. The quality of life. Lakshmi said it was weird that I wasn't on the literary magazine like everyone else who wanted to be a writer or like Lakshmi herself, who wasn't a writer, but cared about writing. I didn't get what Lakshmi meant when she said she wasn't a writer. I'm rubbish at it, she said. Well, none of us are good. No, it's different. I used to write poems. Horror flickered across her face. For the application to work on the literary magazine, you had to read a short story, describe its strengths and weaknesses, and say what revisions you would ask for if you were going to publish it. The story they gave you was about a plumber who had sex with a housewife whose toilet he was fixing. I wrote down some ways that I thought the story could be less dumb. I got onto the fiction board. Lakshmi was voted to be the person in charge of parties, an area in which her expertise was widely recognized. A recurring problem in the ethics seminar was how to avoid ending up at something called the repugnant conclusion. The repugnant conclusion said that it was possible to justify decreasing a population's quality of life if you made the population bigger. It was really hard not to get there. Even if you said something inoffensive sounding like, I think we should do the most good for the most people. That meant that if there were a million people whose lives were well worth living and you had the opportunity to transform them into a billion people whose lives were barely worth living, you would be morally obligated to do it. And there you were at the repugnant conclusion. The phrase barely worth living made a knot form in my stomach. In what country was it happening? One afternoon, when I stopped by Svetlana's room to pick her up to go running, she came to the door wearing just leggings and a sports bra. I hooked up with Matt, she said, indicating some red marks on her chest and shoulders. Was that hives? Did some action have to be taken? Who was Matt? Not that camping guy. I felt relieved when Svetlana zipped up her fleece. Maybe things would go back to normal. Nothing went back to normal. Matt was now Svetlana's boyfriend. I felt surprised by my own emotions. 
not by the resentment and the jealousy, but by the relief, guilt, and disappointment. Insofar as Svetlana and I had been in competition over whose worldview was better, that was over. She would never again be what she had been, not in my life and not in her own. This boyfriend or his successor would restrict her activities, her thoughts. In a way, I had won, but it felt like defeat. How could she drop out of the race when we had only just started? It became impossible to have a real conversation with Svetlana. The minute you tried to talk about anything interesting, Matt would swiftly, good-naturedly, inexorably change the subject back to one of the only three things he ever talked about. Once, when Matt was traveling with his a cappella group and Svetlana and I were talking the way we used to, Svetlana surprised me by saying, this is the kind of conversation we can't have when Matt is around. I felt unutterable relief. Finally, she had noticed that Matt wasn't fully capable of meaningful discourse, followed by sinking horror. Svetlana had always known, and she didn't care. Lakshmi still loved Noor, but had started dating John, a senior who wrote fiction and had a short story in almost every issue of the literary magazine. I had never successfully read any of his stories. Lakshmi said that John was too good-looking and smart for her. I should probably dump him, she said. If I wait too long, I'll get dumped. John, who lived off campus, had cooked dinner for her. Was it good? I asked. It was fine. She dispassionately described the mushroom risotto, the Sauvignon Blanc, the candles, and the pitcher of chrysanthemums. I said it sounded as if he liked her. No, it's part of his whole thing. What thing? Like, he stares into my eyes and says I'm a mysterious, exotic beauty and he can't decipher me. It's Orientalist bullshit. She tilted up her chin in a way that made her cheekbones stand out. Lakshmi said that the problem with John was that eventually he was going to want to have sex. I didn't get why it was a problem, since she thought he was so good-looking and smart. But I'm going to be a virgin when I get married, Lakshmi said. I was stunned. But what about Noor? I asked, though it wasn't the right question. Nothing ever happened with Noor, she said. I frowned, trying to think of how to formulate what it was I wanted to know. It was something about what rules she was following and with what expectations and how she had come up with the rules and the expectations. So you don't think you have to know you're sexually compatible with someone before you decide to get married? I said. But I'm having an arranged marriage, Lakshmi said seeming as surprised by my reaction as I was by this new information. She said it wasn't new. You knew about my sister, she pointed out accurately. But almost the first thing Lakshmi had ever told me about her sister was that she wasn't an intellectual. It wasn't the same as not being intelligent. She was brilliant at entertaining, decorating, and fashion. But she didn't care about books. To me, it made sense that someone who cared more about entertaining than about books might have an arranged marriage. But Lakshmi said that it wasn't related to your interests. Everyone in her extended family had had an arranged marriage. Marriage was arranged marriage. What if you don't want to get married? But I do want to. I think living alone is really difficult, especially for a woman. I admire people who do it, but it's not for me. Anyway, I want children. Feeling obscurely wounded, I found myself asking whether she didn't want to be free to choose her own husband. As I heard myself speak, I felt childish and dumb in a particularly American way. What was it about Americanness that made a person feel so childish, so unesthetic? When I was growing up, I was the only American and the only child in my family, and there was no clear distinction between my Americanness and my childishness the way my parents had to carry my peanut butter and Flintstones vitamins with us to Ankara, and my cousins had to be warned not to make fun of me for not knowing about things. But it wasn't just my family. Didn't everyone in the world think that American people were babies, with their innocence, their Disney, their inability to drive a stick shift? 
Lakshmi said that dating and romance were fun when you were young, but that freedom of choice in love was an illusion. It had something to do with Sartre and how freedom meant you were condemned to constant flux and potential annihilation. Anyway, when it came to choice, Lakshmi had always been her father's favorite, and she knew that he would demand more for her than she could ever demand for herself. Furthermore, an arranged marriage meant that the husband was committing not to you personally, but to thousands of years of tradition, to his whole family, as well as to yours. That took a lot of pressure off your looks, which wouldn't last forever, and off the rest of you, too. Lakshmi's father sometimes joked about women who made love matches, how highly they must value themselves to think they were fascinating enough without the institution of family to keep a man faithful to old age. It finally happened, Svetlana said at lunch one day. I had sex with Matt. Afterward, I thought, today this really important step in my life has taken place. But how is it physically different than if I had just jammed in a banana? The dining hall seemed to have got a shipment of particularly large and underripe bananas. Rigid and green-tinged, they were sharply curved at one end and less curved at the other, which gave them a smirky, jaw-like aspect. It's literally the same thing, Svetlana said, holding a banana. I estimated its girth at about six times that of a tampon. And yet, Svetlana wasn't the kind of person who used literally to mean figuratively. It turns out that Matt has a really big one, she said. But, like, I glanced eloquently, I felt, at the banana. I know. I was so surprised. It's weird how you can't tell what size a guy is going to be. But how did you... How did it... Well, it was excruciatingly painful, especially the first time. But after two or three times, it basically goes in. You don't feel like it's possible, but obviously your body's capacity is greater than your awareness of it. I mean, the circumference of a baby's head is 35 centimeters. I felt a wave of despair. Svetlana asked if I thought she looked different. In fact, her face seemed softer, rounder. She was wearing a white cardigan I didn't recognize, and the white seemed to hold a different meaning than it would have before. I went to a party that Lakshmi had organized at the literary magazine. She was greeting people at the door, smiling dazzlingly through fake eyelashes. You came! She kissed my cheek and touched my skirt. What's this? Finally, you're wearing something that shows your body. My aunt had bought me the skirt and matching top from the DKNY section at Bloomingdale's. They were made of some velvety, drapey material. The way the skirt hung looked intentional, almost sentient. The cost for the two items, more than $300, had struck me as obscene. How was a person allowed to have something like that? Making my way through the crowd upstairs, I was surprised to spot Shahin, the president of the Turkish Students Club. He was standing near a window, talking to a fair-haired guy. Oh, so I actually know a literature person, Shahin said when I approached. This isn't really my scene. He had to lean over for me to hear him. I had never stood so close to him before and hadn't realized how tall he was. His friend, too, was over six feet. It was pleasant to stand beside them, to feel like the smallest and most delicate person. They were drinking to Shahin's getting a grant to study Antarctic seabirds. Shahin brought me a plastic cup of wine. What's new with birds? I asked. Shahin said that somebody had discovered that dinosaurs had had feathers. This was true, not just of avian dinosaurs, but of some other dinosaurs as well. That reminded me of a Woody Allen line about how the thing with feathers wasn't Hope, but was actually his, Woody Allen's, nephew. I didn't have positive feelings about Woody Allen, whose movies often included scenes of men my father's age having remedial conversations about free will or dating catatonic-seeming teenagers. Yet I now found it hilarious that his nephew, like the non-avian dinosaurs, had feathers. Shahin's friend refilled my cup. Was it wine that helped a person appreciate things uncritically? 
how easy and pleasant it was to stand there with those guys, saying whatever random, irrelevant stuff came to mind. It turned out that I could ask whatever questions I thought of, and they would answer. I asked the friend where his accent was from, and he said Poland. I asked about the public transportation in Warsaw. He said you could ride a tram for free if you had fought in the Warsaw Uprising, or if your mother had given birth to you on a tram. At some point, we were at another party. Why did all parties sound and smell the same, even when the component people were different? It was as if all the different individuals came together and formed the eternal entity party person. This reminded me of Voltron, a cartoon about five space pilots who were supposed to defend the universe. In every episode, they got into a terrible predicament where the one who was a girl was always about to be forced to become a sex slave and carry fruit on her head. At the last minute, they would remember to merge their five rockets, thereby forming Voltron, a giant invincible robot man with rocket arms and legs. It was unclear why they didn't become Voltron sooner. It's probably their selfish American individualism, Shaheen said. I was impressed by this evidence that he had been following my long story about Voltron. On the other hand, I was pretty sure that Voltron wasn't an American show. Then again, maybe that was why the people's selfish individualism didn't get better results. I asked whether there was anything in a gin and tonic besides gin and tonic. Shaheen's friend said that the beauty of a gin and tonic lay precisely in its simplicity. The conversation turned to quinine. Shahin said that malaria sometimes affected native Hawaiian songbirds. So get a grant to go to Hawaii and make them tiny gin and tonics, Shahin's friend said, handing out another round. In the mirror, my eyes looked big and especially bright. Tea lights twinkled on the edge of the bathtub. The bathroom door opened and Shahin's friend came in. I started to leave, but he walked right up to me looked down at my face with a speculative, almost affectionate expression, leaned over, and kissed me. It felt slow and easy and endless and immediate. For something that had seemed so impossible for so long to happen so effortlessly, like a row of cards falling over and falling and falling. I remembered an article I had read in Seventeen about what to do with your hands under these precise circumstances. It's said to put one hand on his neck and the other on his chest. The hand on the chest let you feel how strong and sexy he was, but also gave you control. I put one hand on his chest to feel how strong and sexy he was. With the other hand, I tentatively felt the place where his buzz cut started. It felt tender and dear, so full of life. What an amazing thing a neck was, the way all the blood in a human body had to pass through it, and how easy that made it to kill someone. He slid his hand under the waistband of my skirt, first over my underwear, then under it. I felt a wave of panic and pushed lightly with the hand on his chest. Right away, he took his hand out of my underwear, just like Seventeen Magazine had implied that he would. How amazing that it was possible to communicate like that. He touched my face, tilted my chin up, and the angle of the kiss changed and got deeper. Shall we get out of here? He said in a suave, euphemistic-sounding tone. I nodded. I always wanted to get out of here, and nobody ever asked. The cold was breathtaking. Our hands brushed against each other, and then he took my hand in his, which was warm and smooth. Why wasn't it possible to hold hands all the time? I suddenly remembered that, in grade school, my friend Leora and I would routinely walk down the hallway holding hands. When had that stopped seeming normal? Now he was slowing down in front of some random iron gate. Here's where I live he murmured. It hadn't occurred to me that we were going to where he lived. In one movement, he unlocked and opened the door of his suite and flicked on a sallow overhead light. When he leaned in to kiss me, it was like sliding back into the water on one of those long days at the beach, 
where you get out just so you can go back in again. At some point, he said he would be right back and disappeared into the bathroom. I remained standing, contemplating a pile of outdoor equipment that was leaning against the wall. After I had looked at it for a while, I walked around the room. There was nothing else in it but a sofa. The sofa, when I sat on it, had an organic, swamp-like quality. Shahin's friend came out of the bathroom, went over to where we had been standing, and seemed surprised that I wasn't there. His eyes swept the room without seeing me. In his bemused yet tolerant expression, I felt that I could see his whole attitude toward girls. They could be anywhere. He actually opened the closet and looked inside, like maybe I would be sitting in there thinking about my period. Over here, I said. He seemed slightly annoyed, as if it was unfair of me to expect him to guess that I would do something like sit on the sofa. But maybe I had imagined it, because then he was saying, again, in the suave voice, I was afraid I had lost you. In the bedroom, the bottom bunk had been removed to make a loft bed, but there was no desk or dresser underneath, just empty space. With nothing there to step on, it was unclear how to get into the bed. I like this fabric, he said, fingering my top for a moment before pulling it over my head, something I hadn't experienced since age six. How strange that this was like that, that the most adult thing was, in some way, like being a child. He found the hidden zipper and the skirt fell to the floor with a soft whoosh. It turned out that the way you got into the bed was by climbing on the desk and sort of jumping. Why would a person choose to live this way? I had never seen eyes that color up close, grayish blue with hazel flecks. He slid his hand into my underwear again. Ah, Jesus. His voice had some kind of regret in it, as if something was going to get him in trouble. The feeling of being able to get him in trouble was breathtaking. I was struggling to process both the external developments and the possibilities for action. I knew that the first time you had sex was supposed to be with someone special who cared about you. And even if you'd had sex before, you weren't supposed to do it on a first date. Since I had never had sex before and hadn't been on even one date with this guy, indications were that I should not let him have sex with me if that was what he was trying to do on this, our zero date. On the other hand, Svetlana had done everything the way you were supposed to, and none of it had sounded appealing. Svetlana herself hadn't seemed that enthused. And even if I did want to follow that route, who knew when the opportunity would arise? Special, caring guys, the kind who were always talking about respecting women, never did seem interested in me. Frankly, I wasn't their number one fan either. Insofar as this guy didn't seem to think I was special, it felt euphoric and freeing. It was one of the most exciting things that had ever happened to me. Then he moved his hand farther back and did something that made me freeze in pain and terror. And I realized that, as often happened, all my thinking had been beside the point. I couldn't decide to let him do it any more than I could decide to bend my elbow in the opposite direction. I'm not very experienced, I blurted. That's fine, he said and withdrew his hand. It was weird how some things I said seemed to have no meaning to him, while others had a recognized meaning that he immediately responded to. I'll show you what you can do, he said in the suave voice. Planes and satellites blinked inscrutably against the gray glowing sky, and the moon hung low and full over the river. I could hear everything and smell everything, the twigs in the current, the rain from half an hour ago the car's tires and the wet asphalt. I understood that this was it. This was the quality of life and I wouldn't have access to it forever. I had to think through everything now while the window was still open. How did a person live an aesthetic life? In either or, it involved seducing and abandoning young girls, making them go crazy and writing a book about it. But what did you do if you were a young girl? Did you have to be seduced and abandoned? Maybe the challenge then was to not go crazy so you could write the book yourself. Yes, writing a book was key. That was the most important part for me. 
that was what I needed the aesthetic life for. If you lived your life as if it were a novel, then at some point you just had to write everything down. In Russian, the word they used for novel, roman, was also used for love affair. Everything that had happened with Ivan, had it been a roman or hadn't it? At the time, I had thought so, but didn't a love affair imply sex? Was that where I had made my miscalculation, somewhere between being in love and sex? From age 12, I had known that it was related to being in love, that my underwear would get wet, that I wanted to look up orgasm in a dictionary. But I hadn't thought about it any further because I always had more pressing problems, like the problem of escape, and because what had been the point of thinking about it when nobody had showed any signs of wanting to have sex with me? Now, multiple variables had changed. I had escaped. The pressing problem was how to become a writer. And that guy, Shahin's friend, hadn't he wanted to have sex with me? I went over the interaction again in my mind and couldn't think of any other interpretation. I found myself remembering a conversation I had had once with Svetlana about whether women were more affected by heartache than men were, or whether they just weren't as good at compartmentalizing. On an impulse, I had asked if she ever thought our lives would be simpler if we could just date girls. Svetlana didn't reply right away. I find most lesbians intimidating, she said finally. I don't think I'd fit in especially since I'm always lusting after boys. That was something I too had considered, the physical response I had felt to Ivan, the dull electric jolt, like the starting up of some heavy, slow machinery. But was that feeling enough to counterbalance all the disadvantages? But girls are so beautiful, I said, and easier to negotiate with. Again, Svetlana didn't answer right away. I would feel squeamish with anything beyond kissing and playing with each other's breasts, she said. I realized that I, too, had been thinking only about kissing and playing with each other's breasts. What else did lesbians even do? Other than oral sex, which was apparently horrible. The way people talked about it on sitcoms. Does he like deep sea diving? You had to be altruistic to do it. A generous lover. Do you not feel squeamish when you think about boys? I asked. I do, she said, but it still feels exciting. The idea of being penetrated and dominated. I recognize that the idea of being penetrated and dominated was exciting to me too, even if the mechanics, as well as the implications, were unclear and troubling. Svetlana was right. Love wasn't a slumber party with your best friend. Love was dangerous violent, with an element of something repulsive. Love had death in it, and madness. To try to escape those things was childish and anti-novelistic. Inconveniently, I seemed not to have retained Shahin's friend's name. Shahin had introduced us, but we both had foreign names, the kind you needed to hear a couple of times. In retrospect, it didn't seem auspicious that he hadn't asked me to repeat my name, On the other hand, maybe he had just missed the right moment and had planned to ask Shahin later, and I would hear from him soon. When some days had passed and I hadn't heard anything, I got his name from Shahin myself and sent a carefully composed email asking if he wanted to get a coffee. He replied immediately, to be honest, I don't really drink coffee. It turned out there was always a party somewhere You didn't have to know the people whose room it was in. At one party, I ran into Ham, a guy from my Constructed Worlds class. His hair was longer now and green. He seemed pleased to see me. I walked around the room, drinking warm beer from a solo cup. Everyone was obsessively drinking this beer, which came out of a keg. I had never seen a keg before. It looked comically literal. I went back to where Ham was standing and stood nearby. Within two minutes, he had put his arm around me and asked if I wanted to get out of there. Had it always been this easy? Armies of tiny painted lead figures 
belonging to different tribes or races, were stationed on every surface of his dorm room. The dresser drawers were pulled out to varying extents and covered with green felt boards to make terraces, and a war was happening on the terraces. Clearing a platoon of militarized trolls from the bed, Ham talked about his girlfriend in Anchorage who had an eating disorder and said that he had always been attracted to me. I told him that I had never had sex before. He said there were lots of other things we could do. I emailed Shaheen's friend again. Okay, forget the coffee, I wrote. There's this other thing I need you to help me out with. I wasn't sure how good of a reader he was, so I tried to explain it really clearly, how the situation I had been in when we met, I needed to not be in anymore, how I needed his help. After I had send, I went back to doing my Russian homework. I had finished only three exercises when the phone started to ring. That was Elif Bateman reading her story, The Repugnant Conclusion. She is a staff writer at The New Yorker. You can hear more New Yorker fiction read by the authors on newyorker.com and on the New Yorker apps available from the App Store or from Google Play. On the New Yorker Fiction Podcast, we invite writers to choose stories from the magazine's archives to read and discuss. This month, Sherman Alexi reads Where I'm Calling From by Raymond Carver. You can subscribe to that and other New Yorker podcasts by searching for The New Yorker in your podcast app. Tell us what you thought of this podcast by rating and reviewing The Writer's Voice in Apple Podcasts. Our theme music is by Jordan Batiste and Ross Michaels of North American Plastics. The Writer's Voice is produced by Michelle Moses. I'm Deborah Treisman. Thanks for listening. <laughs>